Open our Bibles and go to the book of Acts, chapter number three. The book of Acts, chapter number three. This evening, I'd like to teach a lesson entitled Testimony to the Resurrection. Acts chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is the Apostle Peter giving an explanation to the people regarding a man that was healed. And he's at that point in his testimony where he is letting them know what they did to Jesus. Verse 14. But ye, or all of you, denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Now, of course, Peter is affirming for all of them They're not just simply making up stories and tales, but Jesus literally came out of that grave and he wanted everybody to know that. The Jewish people were familiar with Jesus. They needed to hear all of this. But for folks like you and me, we celebrate his resurrection weekly. But for some people, Easter is only celebrated annually. But because we love the king, we gather and worship all the time. Now, each year about this time on the calendar, we have programs that come on television that try to deal with the resurrection. And these individuals who are in these programs oftentimes attack the validity of the biblical accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the resurrection stories are attacked and undermined in every way possible. We have academics that have written all kinds of literature and books that are popular, and it has led to a lot of disruption in people's personal beliefs and what's taking place in many churches. And of course, if these individuals deny the truth of the gospel then they publish on this same topic, then our reporters, journalists, and very often the people in society find these individuals credible. It was in the 19th century when the German theologians began to really attack the Bible in a professional way. They took professional language and made it a scientific enterprise They worked on the infallibility of the scripture, saying that the scripture is just filled with errors. And they said there's no way that Jesus could have been born of a virgin, ever bore our sins or lived without sin all of his life. People like that naturally couldn't believe in a resurrection and ascension or any idea that he's at the right hand of the father. By the 20th century. Many of our Bible colleges and seminaries were headed up by people who wanted approval from Ivy League University academics. And pretty soon they started adopting so much of that that came out of German universities, British universities, liberal American universities. And amid all of that, these graduates came out to the larger metropolitan areas came into the rural parts of America 
and introduced a new theology. Is there any wonder that our nation has changed as it has in the last century? You know as well as I do that out here in the heartland, it's, it's uh, very traditional, uh, conservative in many ways in the thinking, a more preservative mentality. But who would have ever thought that so much of that ungodly mind would creep into the corners of these small villages? I'm telling you right now, seven out of ten pastors that I meet out here in the heartland don't even believe the Bible is the word of God. I listen to sermon after sermon, whether it's on a public station or some kind of article in a newspaper that a preacher or published, and there's not enough in it to even discover that one is a sinner and that they need a savior. We transform the ministry into that of being a mentor or a coach, somebody inspiring rather than someone that is used by God to produce the conviction that can come only from God. But the, the notion of the resurrection, it's biblical. It comes from the Bible. Let's not forget Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. It said that Abraham accounted that God was able to raise his son from the dead. Abraham had a boy that he loved. God spoke to him, said, I see that you love that boy a whole lot. I want you to go a few days journey, take him to the top of a mountain. And there you're going to sacrifice that son. Abraham gets up with his boy. They make the journey after they loaded down those beasts of burden, came to the foot of the hill, started climbing it. Isaac said, Daddy, typically we're carrying some animal up here that we're going to sacrifice. Where is he today? Dad looked at the boy and said, Our Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. They got to the top of that hill. Isaac helped Dad build that altar. Dad didn't have to chase Isaac around the top of that hill when he said to him, son, lay down, lay down here. And, and, and we've got to do this because of what God said. And that young man watched as, as his dad put together the ropes and he laid there still as daddy bound him. And he took that knife in his hand. And just when he's about to thrust it into his own boy, that's when he hears that angel say, you don't have to do that now. I know you love me. More than you love that boy. And he looked up and there was a ram caught with his horns in that thicket. But Hebrews eleven nineteen makes it very plain. Abraham believed God could raise that boy from the dead. There is your first explicit notion or teaching that he could come back from the grave. I have no doubt that that Abraham in his heart, if he didn't say to his son, Isaac, I love you with everything within me. And I promise you, son, as I do this, I will die up here on this hill with you if God doesn't raise you from that dead. If he doesn't bring you out of death, I'll die here. He didn't have to sacrifice his son. That same belief that was in in uh, Abraham was also in David. Psalm 16.10 says, you will not suffer his body to suffer corruption in the grave. And that's exactly what transpired. His verse became the prophetic text of the New Testament. Jesus went in the grave, but when he came out of that grave, he was totally different with a transformed body. Now, it's Matthew that tells us that this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham the son of David, 
Abraham believed in the resurrection. David believed in the resurrection. This belief was passed down through the centuries from one generation to the next so that Jesus Christ himself came. And that's why Jesus could say in John chapter five, verse number 21 regarding his father, for as the father raiseth up the dead. So Jesus believed in the resurrection. If Abraham believed it, if David believed it, if Jesus believed in the resurrection, if we're born of Jesus and we're Christian, which means to be Christ-like, it doesn't matter what any professor says in any college or university. It doesn't matter what any preacher says in any pulpit. If the book says there's a resurrection, I promise you God's able to do it. That's where we put our faith. And you have to choose who you're going to believe. Now, for us, we've chosen scripture. This tells us if there's going to be a resurrection, it has to be preceded by death. Because you can't have revival, resurrection, without something dying previously. If Adam and Eve had not sinned in the Garden of Eden, I'm telling you, they could have been in this meeting here tonight. But because they sinned, death came into the world. Transgression multiplied. Fear entered into this world. Shame and guilt, murder, and so much more. But if there has to be a death that precedes the resurrection, what death are we talking about? Our saviors? Yeah, The night in which he was betrayed, scripture is very plain. It's a very difficult night, a tumultuous night. Somebody close to him betrayed him by the name of Judas. Jesus got up from that dinner, marched across the river with his disciples, headed to Gethsemane. The Bible says he told his disciples, wait here, told Peter, James and John, come with me. Went a few steps and said, you three, wait here. And he went a stone's throw from them and fell down, began to wrestle with the king, with destiny. The disciples fell asleep. But the scripture said that while all of this was taking place, a mob had gathered in order to go to Gethsemane to arrest Jesus because Judas had betrayed him for just a few Pieces of silver. And when they showed up, they didn't even recognize who he was. They had to have Judas kiss him on the cheek. Jesus said, are you betraying me? You're a friend of mine. Why would you do this? Peter, of course, he was ready to battle. He pulled a sword out and would have taken a man's head off had he not moved his head. And only thing he lost was an ear. But yet Jesus, in the middle of all of that, reached up and touched the man's ear and healed him. Even on his way to Calvary, he's still making people whole. The scripture says that the disciples forsook him and fled, and they marched Jesus off to that place where he's going to be judged and tried. I I don't know, folks, but religious people are some of the meanest people on the planet, I'm telling you. They'll send you to hell for hair being too short or wearing too much makeup or putting on a pair of pants. They'll they'll send you to hell if you don't do this or do that. But they stood there in that judgment hall and accused Jesus and said, you aren't like us. The Pharisees and the priests, you're not like us. And they beat Jesus, treated him shamefully. 
The Bible says he went from Pilate to Herod, Herod and them, and the soldiers stripped him of his garments. And the Bible says they pulled all of that off of him, put some other garments on him, had a reed that they put in his hand, acted like he was a king and bowed their knees like he was a king, then took the reed, hit him over the head with it, said they even spat on him. I mean, some of us in here get offended if someone spits in our direction. Imagine multitudes of soldiers walking by, spitting on him. And Jesus didn't say anything. He endured it. Went back to where those folks were at. Pilate allowed him to be uh, bludgeoned, bloodied, and beaten. They laid that whip on his back. And I'm telling you, just ripped it up. Ripped it to shred. Blood everywhere. Crown of thorns eventually pressed on that brow as multitudes of onlookers watched him. Then they gave him a cross to carry. In that weakened condition, hour after hour, he's got to go through all of this. And at the end, when that body is weak and feeble, he carries that cross through those streets. Multitudes are watching him. But you know who's standing close by? Those ladies. Close by as he carried that cross. He turned and looked at them and said, ladies, don't cry for me. You're in a lot more trouble than I am sticking around here. And they watched as he went to Calvary. And when he got to Calvary, you know what? No Roman soldier had to tie him up or chase him down a hill in the valley and drag him back up. He willingly laid down and they put him on that cross. I, I don't know how big and long those nails were, but I'm telling you, they had to be long to penetrate flesh, go into the wood, and then hold that body up there on that cross. And Jesus hung there, and the scripture says in John that there were those standing nearby the cross. His mama, other ladies. Think of that. The young boy you gave birth to, hanging there on that cross, People walking by mocking him. He's, he's uh, dressed in a way that's inappropriate for a Jewish male. He's hardly recognizable because his face likely is swollen. There's blood everywhere. But there's a mama standing there looking at the boy whose diaper she changed many years ago. Looking at that young man who she watched as he took his first little halted steps and then ran over, got him back up. That's a mama that's standing by the cross with these other ladies who had been delivered from demon power, who had been saved from their iniquity. They wouldn't leave. Jesus hung there on that cross and eventually he died, gave up the ghost. Joseph of Arimathea was begging for the body of Jesus from the authorities. They, they gave it to him. And, and, and Joseph, with his friend Nicodemus, who had come with the lotions and the oils and the spices to prepare the body, now they have to do the unthinkable. They've got to hoist that cross up out of the ground, lay that cross on the ground, and with some kind of an instrument, they've got to try to ply those nails out of that hand. Out of that other hand, they've got to try to pull those nails out of those feet. Folks, listen to me. Jesus couldn't crucify himself any more than you or I can crucify ourselves. That's why we have to die in him. But they had to wipe the blood off of the brow of the face that once radiated with a great countenance. 
That face that had smiled at little kids, that had loved so many people. They've got to take, take all kinds of towels and daub that scalp, and they've got to remove the blood so that they can cleanse it, apply the lotions and the oils and the spices, wrap the body in linen, and then they've got to carry it to a new tomb where nobody has been laying. But do you realize, as they did all of that, the women were standing back and they were watching to see where they were putting that body. Well, after they sealed the tomb, I guess the question to ask would be, how would you have slept that night after you had seen your Lord and your Savior brutally treated up there on that cross? You probably wouldn't. And I doubt if those ladies slept either, because at the dawning of the day, here they come marching right back to that place where their Lord had been laid. Only to get there and realize, oh my goodness, that stone has been rolled away, folks. That's the beautiful thing about God. You can pass through the worst situations in your life, but he has power to revive and resurrect even when it looks like it's impossible that he can turn a situation around. If he could pull Jesus up out of the grave after three days, don't tell me he can't revive your life or your circumstances, or your situation. You could have a limb in your body that's dead, but God can speak a word and life can return to it in just an instant. God can do that. So it's true then that he comes up out of the grave. The testimony of the resurrection is given by multitudes of people who were firsthand witnesses, and they saw him. So why then... Do I believe in the resurrection? I believe in the resurrection because I don't believe so many people could have conspired to tell a tale this good. Four different accounts, all saying the same thing. From Genesis to Malachi, over thousands of years, people prophesying about someone to come, and they're all in different generations, but they're telling us about the same individual. Nobody could have put together a story with so many details had it not been true like this. Why do I believe in the resurrection? Because no corpse was uncovered. No corpse or body was found in death that they can return us to at this point. Now, I don't know how many graves there are here in Thayer County, but I do know this. Every year when we have Decoration Day or Memorial Day, there are people who head to the cemetery with flowers and everything else, and they put out there and beautify it and and all of these different things. I've never understood some of our traditions. I don't know who smells those things out there, but they take them out there and make them all pretty and, and everything. But you know as well as I do, that body is in the ground because you were there. Or if you weren't there, you know someone who was there. You can go to Russia today. You can head down to the Red Square and they've got Mr. Lennon in some oxygenated, some kind of a contraption that's holding his body together. You can still find him. You can go into the Middle East and there are all kinds of museums and mosques that will tell you that they're holding a hair from the beard of Muhammad. Everybody knows that his body 
is in Mecca somewhere where it was buried. And I mean, you can even go to where Abraham Lincoln is buried and stand there and look at the names that are on the headstone. Some of your favorite preachers, they're all there. They're remnants turned to dust, but it's all there. But I promise you, folks, there's nobody that can take you to a place where they can find the body of Jesus Christ that returned to dust. Impossible. He came up out of that grave. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So if I believe in the resurrection, what specifically do I believe about the resurrection? Well, I believe he was placed in the sepulcher because this is what the book tells us. Joseph and Nicodemus put his body there. This is what was conveyed to the disciples. This is what was understood. So I believe he was genuinely and literally buried. But at the same time, I believe in the presence and in the power of angels. Those angelic hosts all throughout the career and ministry of Jesus Christ. There are angels in operation. When he was born, the angels appeared in the skies. Says we're telling everybody unto you is born a savior. You need to go check this out. And then when Jesus was baptized in the water, spirit of God descended, led out into the wilderness. And the Bible says the angels of the Lord came and ministered to him. When he was yet in Gethsemane praying, and it said that his sweat was thick like great drops of blood. It said the angel of the Lord was there strengthening him. And then, of course, here at the resurrection, the angels of the Lord are right here in the middle of this. So for Jesus' life and ministry, we have to believe in angels. We should believe in angels. But let's never forget the Bible says the angel of the Lord encampeth about those that fear him. Yeah, that's what it says. There's rejoicing in heaven over a sinner that repents. I'm telling you, we we have to believe in angels. In fact, there are too many unexplainable incidents that happen in your life as a Christian for you to believe that there are no angels. There's just been too many occasions where you have been doing this or you have been doing that. And then suddenly God is able to deliver and God rescues you or God blesses you. Folks, I know you might believe you're smart, but you're not that smart. You might believe you're powerful, but I can tell you, you're not powerful enough to save yourself from a lot of situations. God has to have angelic hosts that work on behalf of the people that have a covenant with him. He sent the angel of the Lord out before the children of Israel in the wilderness. They were preserved. See, And that same angel in the nighttime would then come to the back and be a wall of fire for them. That's what God does. I I think of the time when I was flying to New Orleans and I had to preach down in Baton Rouge. And it was one of the worst storms I'd ever had to fly through in my life. We were way up there above the clouds and they said we're heading down. And I mean, they said we're going to descend through this rainstorm. Now I'm looking out the window. I can see lightning flashing in the clouds there. It's dark. I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is not going to be pretty at all. 
We come down into the clouds and sure enough, that plane started to shake. Rain and stuff is hitting it in every direction. Flashes of lightning are appearing. And every time the light appeared, you could see the wing on the plane. And it looked to me like the wings were doing this here. I said, oh, my goodness, this isn't good. But at least I knew Jesus. So I'm on that plane. And of course, when you're nervous, you, you call on the name that you know, and that's the name of Jesus. I'm shouting Jesus. I'm speaking in tongues. I'm telling you all kind of stuff is going on in that plane with me. And the people that were around me, whatever kind of religion they thought they knew, thought they had, all of that was coming in the manifestation. Because every time you hit an air pocket and then the plane drops, you think you only dropped about maybe 12 or 13 inches. You just dropped 18 feet. So when that plane goes down, it feels like everything here comes up and folks were shouting the name of Jesus. But I'm telling you, folks, I honestly believe God put angels on the either side of those wings to make sure I got down on that ground. One time, Tiffany and I were driving down to Texas, middle of the night, terrible ice storm, hit a patch of ice, car turned and I mean, you start doing the 360 on ice, folks. I'm telling you, you'll become a believer in Jesus quickly. You will call on his name. But on so many occasions, we've come through unscathed. And there's no other explanation other than God preserving and protecting us. And when you think about your own life, how in the world do you think you've made it this far? Do you really believe that your muscles are that big? Do you honestly believe you're smart enough to get yourself out of every situation? I believe God touches the hearts of multitudes of people to be a blessing to you and to be there when you least expect them to be there. So the scripture is clear. These angels were there, the resurrection of Jesus. They were sitting on the stone. And because of that, and because they themselves confessed, he is not here, he's risen. I believe in angels, their power, and their presence. But also believe in the testimonies of those who were alive then. Those women, they never turned their back on Jesus. They were there. I believe in the testimony of the two disciples on that Emmaus road. They're coming down that trail, and they're talking with one another, saying, what are we going to do now Life has just come to an end. I mean, the camp meetings are over. Don't you remember that time we were sitting on the side of that mountain? Jesus ta taught for three days and none of us wanted to leave. None of us. And here comes Jesus right in the midst of them. He says, what are you guys talking about? They looked at him and said, are you, where do you new? Are you stranger around here? How in the world you don't know what's going on? They just killed the most important man that's ever lived in Israel. Jesus walked with them a little ways, finally opened their eyes, and they understood that here was the Savior sitting there with them. And pretty soon their hearts began to burn like it did when he was here before. I believe the testimony of those two witnesses. I believe the testimony of Mary when she was in that garden and got there and the stone was rolled away and she was heartbroken, didn't know where the body was at and was wondering and she was backing up and she bumped into somebody, didn't know who it was until she looked and thought it was the gardener. Until Jesus mentioned her name. Nobody can whisper your name like he can. Nobody can get your attention like he can. 
And she reached out and grabbed him and embraced him. She knew he was alive again. She ran to those disciples and told them, said, look, I'm telling you right now, that man came up out of the grave. I know it was ugly the other day when we were there and he was up there on that cross. But I'm telling you right now, I was just over there and, and our Savior, our Master, our Rabbi, our Lord, he's here. And they looked at her and they said, you have lost your mind. Do you know how he died? Do you remember what they did? But just to take you up on it, we're going to run. So, I mean, they took off running. A couple of them, they're moving fast. They got there. They went back. They said, well, the stones rolled away where Peter, he, he wanted to know more. He took off. He started running. And I mean, it was a race to see who could get there first. He didn't stop outside the tomb. He went inside the tomb to get a look. And when he got in there, he saw somebody all dressed in white and glowing, shiny figure. Lo and behold, over there were the grave clothes. All neatly folded. You young people can learn something from that. Jesus kept his room tidy. And he exited that place and came out. And the disciples had to come to a conclusion. This man is alive or my eyes are playing tricks on me. But one day, all ten of them were gathered together, excluding Thomas and certainly not Judas, But Jesus comes and walks in the midst of them and says, peace be unto you. They were hiding because they were afraid. You say, why were they afraid? Because they knew those Roman soldiers and those religious folks were looking for whoever might have stole that body. And they're hiding in there. And Jesus comes in the midst and he says, look, folks, I've come to encourage you. And that's why we read this story. We believe this story because no amount of fear is greater than the presence of Jesus. And in his presence is fullness of joy. That's what the Bible teaches. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but one of love and a sound mind and some power he's given, the Bible says. When they told Thomas, they said, look, you, you weren't here the other day, but Jesus showed up. And, and I'm telling you, he, he, he's alive again. And Thomas was like one of those scholars in the university, said, I won't believe it unless I have a vision myself or unless I see him and take my physical hands and stick it in them holes. I don't care how many of you tell me there's a miracle that has taken place. Tell me that's not like how people talk today. Yeah. Here comes Jesus walking into the room where Thomas was alone and Thomas looked at him and Jesus said, Thomas, stretch forth your hand and touch these holes right here. Thomas realized it was the Lord. He said, my Lord, my God. He's ready to worship now. See, ready to worship now. And he said to Thomas, Thomas, you are blessed because you have seen me and you believe. But he said, much more blessed are those who believe and have never seen him. We haven't seen the Lord physically in the flesh. Not a one of us in here has seen him in that way. But one day we will. One day we will. See? Just like that little baby inside that womb and that little small watery cocoon. Mom gets to talking to that baby, singing to that baby, and that little baby and that womb gets used to that muffled sound of mama's voice. Yeah. 
And you know, of course, you know, years ago, people talked to their babies, the doctors and psychologists would have thought mama was breaking up a little bit. Now, I'd encourage you to do that. But eventually, at some point, that little baby emerges from that little world into a world that's so much bigger and finally gets to look on the face of the one that's been talking to him or her these past months. Do you realize right now we're guided and led by the Holy Ghost and by this precious book that when God talks to us, we hear him distinctly through his word. But do you realize one day we're all going to take a 30 inch step on the other side of our breath and we're going to emerge into a world that's bigger than this one. And we're going to see him who has loved us before we ever loved him and look upon his face. So this is why. We accept these testimonies. Let's not forget that even in the book of Acts, the Lord kept confirming his presence. Chapter seven, Stephen was stoned to death. And as he was dying, he looked up. He said, folks, these rocks, I'm telling you, oh, you folks don't like me. You're calling me all kinds of names. But I got one more thing to say. I see Jesus at the right hand of the father right now. Yeah. They said, oh, we can't handle that. But the man died and breathed out his last breath with the rocks pelting him. And as, as he exhaled, he entered into the presence of God, stoned to death. Let's not forget Paul headed to Syria to arrest the Christians. But the Bible is clear. Jesus appeared to him and said, I'm Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? That same Savior appeared to him later on in the book and said to him, you don't have to be afraid. I've got a bunch of folks in this town. And I'm with you. God confirms his presence over and over again. I don't know why so many people need so much other evidence to believe our Savior lives. But I'm not going to become a Hindu. I believe our Savior lives. I'm not going to get involved with witchcraft and Wicca. I believe our Savior lives. I'm not going to get involved with Shintoism and get involved with praying to die and praying to old saints and people who passed on. I believe my Savior lives. And when he confirms his presence, I'll keep following him. There's a place where I go and preach out on the West Coast that was started by a lady named Sister Fernleaf. This lady had a ministry for many, many decades. But she had gotten deathly ill one time. and I mean, right up to death's door. Folks were calling in family members because they thought she was going to die. But in that state where she was somewhat semi-unconscious, she had a vision. In the vision, she saw an enclosed garden with a gate. And she saw multitudes of people that were walking by, transients. She called them bums. But they were just walking by and they would come back this way. But she said occasionally there'd be a few of them that would open that gate and come in. She said once they came into that garden within a few moments in that dream or vision, they had new clothes on. Their right mind had come to them. And she said while she was in that vision, the Lord spoke to her heart and said, if you yield your life to me. And minister to these outcasts in society. I'll heal you and let you live. But if you decline, you're coming on home with me right now. 
in that dream or in that, in that vision, she told the Lord, I'll give everything to you. Well, yes, she woke up, she was made whole, and she went to the Second Street Mission and started preaching there. And I mean, reaching all kinds of outcasts. And that ministry flourished, and pretty soon she ended up with some kids that were coming out to the meeting. And of course, if you get the kids, you end up with the parents. So now she had a little thriving little flock of people. Started that little church out there in Corbell, California. Old town with lumberjacks Things like that. And so she preached and she ministered. Then eventually they needed a new building. Well, a few miles away, there had been an AG church that was there, similar to God. I don't know what happened, but the church fell apart. The congregation scattered and one person was left in this building. And the people who ran the district, were ready to sell the property and bring the money right on over into headquarters. Well, Sister Fernleaf and some gentlemen went over there, looked around and prayed about it, thought this would be a good place to set up shop to preach the gospel and praise the Lord. That's exactly what they did. They acquired that building, that one lady who had been praying that God would send somebody to continue to use this as a house of God. She saw her prayers answered. First time I went out to California to preach 25 years ago, that lady who had been the last intercessor, the last prayer warrior, the last woman standing, was still in that new church where I went to go preach. And she told me that story, and I thought to myself, oh my goodness, how many other people would have gave up praying a long time ago? But God reached down in the middle of all of those ashes and started a new fire and revived the work again. Folks, don't tell me God can't revive his work. Don't tell me God can't resurrect the dead. God can do what we're incapable of doing, what we're unwilling to do. If he only has somebody, that'll trust him. Do you believe that tonight? No doubt, folks, we serve a great and mighty God. Let's stand. Wonderful, wonderful Savior. Wonderful, wonderful Savior. On this Easter, we want you to know how loved you are by the King, how appreciated you are by the King. But before we depart from this place, let's at least just take a few moments and let's just lift those lightning rods toward heaven and just worship this wonderful God. Oh, God, we honor you tonight. Why, Lord, have you looked upon us to love us as you do? Who is man that you would be mindful of him, O God? Why, O God, have you sent your son into this world to die for our sins? But yet, God, you're living in all of us. I pray that you'd help each one of us to be a lighthouse. Help each one of us, Lord, to represent you the right way as ambassadors of your kingdom. We worship you tonight. We praise you. Thank you for our life. Thank you for our health. Thank you for our strength. Thank you for the vehicles that we drive, the clothes on our back. We praise you for the family and friends that we have, that we have a facility in which we can worship. We thank you that we even have hands to lift to you when so many don't even have arms, almighty God. We thank you that we have a mouth with which we can praise you when so many people wish they had a tongue, oh God, and could lift up the mighty name of Jesus. 
We thank you today, God, that we've got legs that we can stand on. When somebody had one or both of them amputated a long time ago. But God, you've blessed us and kept us and preserved us and protected us. Thank you, oh God, that we're healthy tonight. And God, where there's illness or weakness, I pray that it would disappear mighty not right now because of your presence, God. You work in our bodies. You work in our lives. You work on our behalf. Where someone needs rescue, where someone needs deliverance, where someone needs divine intervention. We're thanking you right now, God, for sending forth your angels to work on our behalf. You said they were ministering spirits sent forth to minister unto the heirs of salvation and they worked for you, God. And we thank you for that and love you and honor you. In the mighty name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen, Amen. Aren't you glad he was raised from the